Today, I want to talk about different definitions of inerrancy and how those intersect with the reportage model of the Gospels that I advocate. It may occur to you to wonder, why would Lydia be concerned or interested in different definitions of inerrancy? And you might wonder that because I'm often saying that I myself am not an inerrantist. And it's an understandable uh, question that you might have. The reason is because I'm interested in clarity in these areas connected to the Gospels. And when we have a lack of clarity, then there can be a misunderstanding of my own views and a misunderstanding of the arguments for different views. I was brought to realize this recently when I was having a correspondence, and it was a a really good, fruitful correspondence in the end. But at a certain point, my correspondence said something to the effect that uh, the reportage model he thought, entails that the Gospels are errant, that they contain errors. And I said, no, wait, well, why would you think that? I was very surprised. And we went on to have a really good conversation, and I was able to clear that up. But it occurred to me to wonder if there are possibly others out there with a similar misconception, and I definitely wanted to clear that up. Um, Often when I am talking about the reportage model, I will say two things. First, that the gospel authors are always trying to get it right. They're never making anything up or changing anything knowingly. And then secondly, that they are highly successful. And so that term highly successful could allow for errors, but it does not necessitate them. In other words, for all that that statement says that they were highly successful, they could be 100% successful, which would be the position of the traditional inerrantist. So I am not taking everything that I think and building it into the definition of the reportage model. The reportage model can include what I think about there being some minor errors in the Gospels, but it is also compatible with there being no errors in the Gospels. When I was talking about this video, and I was planning to make it, uh, my husband, I sometimes call him esteemed husband, uh, Tim McGrew said, well, I could make you a, a diagram, a spatial diagram that would be helpful to showing that. And I said, yeah, do that when he described it. So here's the diagram, and here's the reportage model. And that's the space, that's the whole space. And here's what I call traditional inerrancy, okay? And you can see that traditional inerrancy is entirely inside the reportage model. And what the diagram is indicating by that is that if you are a traditional inerrantist, and I'll be talking about what I mean by that a little more in a moment, then you already hold the reportage model. That's what you already believe. It's just a a different name for it that maybe you don't you don't use. Um, in other words, traditional inerrancy entails the reportage model. But the reportage model doesn't entail traditional inerrancy, and that's why there's space within the reportage model outside here for people like me. Uh, and so I hope that diagram is helpful. Now I could just stop there. But obviously I've raised this question of what's what's this term traditional inerrancy? And I think it's important to understand 
that concept and to contrast it with the concept of inerrancy that is being urged by compositional device theorists, which is a much different concept. It's compatible with things that traditional inerrancy is not compatible with. Um, in order to alert people to the fact that they may be changing their minds by accepting the compositional device views without realizing that they're changing their minds. And I think sometimes when we keep the same name, you know, we can be uh, radically changing what we're talking about and, and it's, it's sort of subconscious and you don't realize it. And then that can lead to not examining the arguments very carefully. Because if you realize that you're changing your mind about something that's really important to you, you're more likely to say, well, you know, do I really have to accept this? Is this really supported by rigorous arguments. Whereas if you're sort of lulled into thinking, oh no, you know, this is still the same thing because you already already allowed for the uh, views of the time and the concepts of the time. Or maybe you think that compositional devices uh, are just figures of speech like bow down your ear and hear me, which they are not. That's not what the compositional devices are that I'm talking about, that I'm arguing against. Um, so you may think that you aren't really changing your mind because the same term is being used. And so I think that leads to unclarity and to a lack of rigor. Now, we can use words any way we want. I could use the word banana to mean a cheeseburger. But then if I say I'm going to go and eat a banana and I'm going to go and eat a cheeseburger, uh, that's going to create confusion. People are going to think I'm actually... Uh, eating something different from what I'm eating. So the mere fact that you use the same name doesn't mean you're referring to the same thing. And we saw this in other videos when we talked about paraphrase, for example, that was last week's video. So it's important to realize when a concept has actually been altered while <clears throat> people are keeping the same name. As the old saying goes, if you call a tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? Well, the dog still has four legs because calling a tail a leg does not make it a leg. So let's think a little bit about what I'm calling your traditional inerrancy. I want here to address viewers to whom inerrancy is important. And so what I mean here is you, you don't just want a definition of inerrancy that's as broad as possible so that everybody can uh, sign a statement or so that you can sign a statement, so that you can belong to a professional organization, or maybe you have to sign a statement for work or something like that if you work for a Christian organization. No, it's not just that. It's that a, what you conceive of as the doctrine of inerrancy is something that you think is really important, that the Bible is inerrant. Uh, I would say probably 100% of the people to whom the doctrine is important like that already hold the reportage model. And here's a way that I will show this. Consider the Gospels. Now, I'm going to make a strong statement here, but I will stand by it. If the Gospels in the Bible are not historical books, then there are no historical books in the Bible. So once again, if the Gospels are not historical books in the Bible, then there are no historical books in the Bible. What do I mean by that? Well, the Gospels Acts as well are just paradigmatically historical books in the Bible. Okay, they, there's no ambiguity about whether they're intended to be historical in their self-presentation. They contain all of these 
tie downs. So let's not distract attention. Oh, what about the first chapter of Genesis? We're not talking about the first chapter of Genesis right now. We're talking about books that say things like in the reign of Tiberius Caesar, in the days of Herod the king, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Okay, or it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus and so forth. Um, he who saw it bear a record and his record is true. Uh, this is how many firkins there were in the uh, in in the jars of water at the at the marriage of Cana and so on and so on. It's just historically tied down at every point. So if these are not historical books in the Bible, there aren't any historical books in the Bible. So take books like that that just unambiguously present themselves as historical, and then you are a inerrantist, and it's important to you to hold to inerrancy. I would say you would think that when you sit down and read a book that presents itself that way, and it makes a straightforward propositional claim, and it doesn't tag it in any way as not being intended to be historical, that you can believe that to be true. So I'm going to give examples here, one for each gospel. Matthew claims that uh, Jesus and Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt. Mark says that the grass was green at the uh, feeding of the 5,000. Luke says that Jesus first appeared to his male disciples, a group of his disciples, uh, after his resurrection in Jerusalem on the evening of uh, the day of Easter that he rose from the dead. And John, just to take one of many examples, says that on the cross Jesus said, I thirst. So those are just examples. And these are asserted in unambiguous terms in these Gospels. How can you tell that you hold the reportage model? By being an inerrantist? Because if you say, I'm an inerrantist, this is important, everything in the Bible is true, you think that when you sit down and you read that in those books, you should believe that it's true. Well, that, that means you're already hold, holding to the reportage model. Because the compositional device view questions each and every one of those that I've just listed and many more. So the compositional device view is that we have to put question marks over things. And so if you read it in that way, you can't know that it's true. Um, because the authors might have just been invisibly altering those things and putting them in there even though they didn't really happen, even though they're not true. And I, I'd like to urge that if you are a, an inerrantist and it's important to you and you switch over to holding a compositional device view, you have definitely strongly changed your view of the Bible, even though you've, even if you decide to retain the term inerrancy, you're, you're changing to a very different definition of it. And I think that's important for you to realize so that you can say, Okay, did I have really strong reason to do that? Um, the concept of inerrancy that ends up being used with the compositional device views is it's either just something like, well, all the important things in the Bible are true, and so now, you know, I guess where and when Jesus first appeared to his disciples after his resurrection is not important, or something like, well, uh, everything that the Bible affirms is true, but this is completely divorced from any kind of uh, straightforward hermeneutics so that it could be hermeneutics being 
the interpretation, so that you could be an inerrantist in this entirely empty, vacuous sense, even if you don't even believe in the resurrection, because you could say, I believe everything that the Bible affirms is true, but I've decided that's just a metaphor or whatever. Now, that's an illustration. I'm not saying any of the compositional device theorists actually hold that uh, the resurrection is a metaphor. That's not my point. My point is that a vacuous view of inerrancy is then compatible with that, and that's obviously a very different view of inerrancy from what you were holding to begin with. You're, you're calling a tail a leg, and you should not be lulled into thinking you haven't changed your mind just because the same term is being used. Now, this was all recognized quite a number of decades ago after the framers of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy had, had written that. They realized, and they've talked about this, though they haven't named the scholars that they had in mind, but they realized that there were those who were considered to be within the evangelical camp who were going to try to urge that radical separation between inerrancy and hermeneutics so that they could claim they were inerrantists while taking uh, historical documents or what appeared on in every way to be historical documents within the Bible and dehistoricizing them. So they immediately began uh, meeting and drafting uh, a, a follow-up statement called the Chicago Statement of Biblical Hermeneutics. That came out in 1982, which happened to be the same year that Robert Gundry's commentary on Matthew came out. Uh, I think in a way that was a coincidence. That is to say, the summit on biblical hermeneutics had been being planned for quite some time before Gundry's book came out. But his book illustrated the trend that they had foreseen and were forestalling. Because Gundry said that Matthew was midrash, and he said by that he only meant the spirit of free redaction, uh, or free adaptation and embellishment. And he didn't have any objective standard for telling that it was midrash. That came out in his debate with Douglas Moo in the pages of JETS. But he said that Matthew invented the wise men and the flight to Egypt and the slaughter of the innocent and changed a bunch of other things all the way through the Gospels uh, because he was engaging in midrash on other, other documents. He was, in other words, making stuff up. And that was a perfect example of what they were trying to forestall. So here are a couple clauses from the Chicago Statement on Biblical hermeneutics. And it seems to me that if you're going to be an inerrantist, you should be an inerrantist in this sense. Article 13, we deny that generic categories which negate historicity may rightly be imposed on biblical narratives which present themselves as factual. And from Article 14, we deny that any event, discourse, or saying reported in scripture was invented by the biblical writers or by the traditions they incorporated. And I would say, if you want to hold to any inerrant, inerrancy that is worth the name and that has a content to it and that at least gives you reliability for the self-presented historical books of the Gospels, you should hold to it in that sense. Because otherwise it would be a great irony that the books would end up not being reliable in any straightforward sense, even if they present themselves as historical but you would still be claiming they're inerrant. What's the point at that point? And I want to urge this, not because I am an inerrantist myself, but because if you are an inerrantist, I want you to realize that, to begin with, you hold the reportage model. 
already. And that if you change that, that's a change. And therefore, you should be examining the arguments carefully because that's a change on something that was important to you. And you will already be abandoning inerrancy in the sense that you originally meant it if you move to a compositional device view. So I also want to urge against a confusion to the effect that this compositional device view, because its practitioners claim to be inerrantists, that's the one you should go for if you're an inerrantist, whereas because Lydia doesn't claim to be an inerrantist and she's advocating the reportage model, you should reject the reportage model. It's exactly the opposite. And I think it's important to realize that, uh, as, as I said, traditional inerrancy actually entails the reportage model. And that's, that's going to be important to you, or it should be important to you, if you are an inerrantist, and inerrancy is important to you. You know, they say uh, that it's, it's easiest to fool oneself. And that's part of what I'm urging here in terms of rigor, is that, above all things, let's not fool ourselves. If we're changing our minds, let's admit that we're changing our minds, and then let's examine carefully the arguments for that and see if they justify that change. Thanks for watching.